you stand if you're able and join me in reading? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 16 through 36. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when they sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us, kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what, for what are we that you are grumbling against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that your grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron, then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. 
You shall, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept through your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And, the, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to habitable land. They ate the manna, then they came to the border of the land of Canaan, and Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. John, you and Jenna and Bailey have been a blessing to us. Give thanks for you and your evening, even uh, wearing a blazer in the assembly, which we know is a sign of spiritual progress. Yeah. <laughs> So we begin today with the question, if you ask, who's responsible for your daily needs? So you could turn the question a bit differently to say, what does it mean to have real satisfaction in this life? Say, so maybe put differently again, to say, what does it mean to experience real pleasure and real joy? Say the world, you start talking about these categories, I think the world has their default answers, right? I am responsible for my daily needs. I think real satisfaction is elusive. Uh, pleasure in, is, uh, in what I can indulge, and you know, joy is uh, too, something that uh, we dream about at Christmas time, but maybe not a reality, something like that. Today, what we're going to see is that the Lord is the one who ultimately satisfies the human heart. Now, you remember where we're at in our narrative that the Israelites have been miraculously uh, delivered, that the story of Exodus, if about nothing else, is a grand narrative of redemption. 
the God of the Bible, there's uh, liberation in him, that he's a promise-keeping God, and what he says he's going to do for his people, he actually delivers. And they're brought through in chapter 14, right? The walls of water on both sides. They're rescued, right? An act of redemption. They were hemmed in on the one side, enslaved in their environment, but brought through to the other side by the hand of God. Chapter 15, you remember last week, they break out in song that the English editors help us out there by breaking it up in stanzas. It looks like a poem because that's what it is. They burst into song saying, look at the power of God, the majesty of God, the steadfast, promise-keeping nature of God, and they celebrate. But we turn today, right, from 15 and verse 22 to 16, and you say, how in the world are these two chapters stacked up against each other, 15 and 16? The great joy of 15 and now 16 Uh, which is very negative indeed on the part of the people. You see, now they find themselves in the desert and at the beginning of a long journey that we know Moses, uh, brushing this up at the end of his life, uh, is going to tell us it's going to be 40 years. They don't know that, but they're on a long journey through the desert, and the question's going to become, how will we be satisfied in the desert? Who's going to meet our daily needs? And God says, don't worry. I provide for my people, and I'm sufficient So we'll make a couple of moves here this morning, as we usually do, hopefully uh, look at them from the text and then how they apply in our own setting. So first, notice how adversity, when we follow God, adversity has a way of exposing us, and then we'll look at what this has to do with God and then ultimately him as our provider. So first, this adversity that they come, and uh, it's not very long, is it? To have a look at chapter 15 and verse 22, it's a rather sad commentary. Three days. They've made it three days after that deliverance. They say the greatest act you could ever imagine. Can you imagine being there hemmed in? Here come the great Egyptian chariots, the great weapon of warfare. You've got nowhere to go. God pulls you through the Red Sea, and you're praising God for this. And three days later, just three days, you feel very differently about things. You'll notice 15 in verse 24, and then 16 in verse 2, you got that word. It's a light motif in Exodus that the people grumble. Say, we know this word. You think, well, the Bible's a very old book. Say, nope, I know exactly what that means. <laughs> We're good grumblers. You can think of it as criticism or Yeah, being negative or or focusing on your problems in the world and articulating those in a not-so-good way, they begin to grumble about their plight. You know, as I thought about this, uh, 15 and 16, God in his wisdom putting these two chapters back-to-back shows you a biblical anthropology that Niebuhr and others would call this the dialectical anthropology that I think is a reality. You see, you always have these two poles. You go back in the history of you know, commentary on human beings. On the one side, there's, there's the great pessimism of people like Hobbes. Uh, Hobbes did not think much of human nature. On the other hand, I think of something like this young Dutch economist, Rutger Bregman. Uh, Bregman, uh, one of his books translated into 32 languages. Uh, by the way, that name of that book, Utopia for Realists. And I think the subtitle is How We Can All Make an Ideal World. You can see uh, Rutger Bregman's uh, breaking in with a lot of young people across the globe because what he says is our real problem is we've been far too pessimistic about our nature. Actually, we're quite good, and if we put our minds together, everything's going to be fine. So this is why this kind of, you know, he gives TED Talks and millions of people walk, watch. And you see, well, what's going on here? Where's the truth? Are we bound to pessimism about uh, what it means to be human? Or with Bregman to say, let's put our minds together and we can usher in the utopia. You say both are wrong. Or you could say both a little bit right. See, biblical anthropology is this. 
God makes humans as the crown of creation. That he's endowed us with wonderful gifts. That he's given us, like in chapter 15, the ability to make song and to use words and to use instruments and to glorify our maker, to come together in community. Say, this is the, the, the high end of man, right? The crown of creation. Only to just later find ourselves in the pit of grumbling. You see, the high and the low, it's exactly what the Bible says, that we're made in the image of God with tremendous capacities, but we've all been marred by sin. You see, I think of each human life as something like a very in, uh, irreplaceable uh, piece of art, a classic piece of art that's been gouged or something. You can say it's magnificent in one sense, but it's deeply flawed. Like these Israelites, God's chosen people, capable of song, but just a short time later, grumbling, critical in the dark spots and will show even a little bit evil. Now, I know any of you, you say this is, a, you know, this can hit home if we're honest. You know, I think about something simple. Maybe some of you last night, you'd anticipated for a great uh, Saturday evening out at a nice restaurant with the kids. You say, this is great. Uh, we're going to go out. We're going to take advantage of the, uh, you know, this is going to be a fantastic experience. You all get going to your favorite restaurant and it doesn't take long, does it? The kids start to bicker. <laughs> say, well, restaurant's a bit short-staffed. And because of the supply issues, they don't have the thing you really wanted. And uh, you're able to eat the meal, and it's okay, but now you find yourselves full, and you get the bill, and you're like, oh, that's a bit more than I wanted to spend. And you say, what happened here over these 90 minutes? I was so excited. There was great things. I was with my family. Only for it to descend and to say, well, it's all too human, isn't it? Say, so it's just like these Israelites. The high, right down to the low. A biblical anthropology. And you know what else is... I think enlightening to us, take a very sober view of what it means to be human. You see, this adversity is forcing us to ask this question, what are we really like? What are humans really like? And I have to say here, you notice the very slow progress of the redeemed. It's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? Those of us who are in Christ to say, well, we should be, uh, you know, right away, you know, with great triumphs and spiritually mature. And you look and say, well, I'm actually a lot like these Israelites God's done a miraculous work in my life that I've been redeemed, I've been brought through the Red Sea, so to speak, and yet my spiritual progress is so very slow because I'm still a sinner and a critic and a grumbler. Now, if you look at verse 3, this is where I say, verse 3, the people are beyond grumbling, but I think go spill over this grumbling into something evil, and they say this, they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and the bread, we had as much bread as we wanted. Think of what they're saying. We wish we were like the non-believer. We wish we faced the same judgment as those who didn't know the real God. Now, I pause here because actually, if I'm honest, say, I can feel this way sometimes too. Say, maybe you're trying to be obedient to the God of the Bible. And your mind begins to drift. You say, you know a non-Christian friend and he seems to be so free or she seems to be so free. Look at the things that there... Wouldn't it be nice to just get rid of all this religion stuff and this God stuff and, and I wish that I could be like the world. You say, I hope not. I do feel that impulse sometimes. But may it not be so, as we'll see, that it's always better to be in the graces of God. And that's, uh, again, the Israelites face adversity and they long for themselves to be like the Egyptians facing the wrath of God outside of God's grace, a very dangerous place to be. Also, you'll notice that verse, the idealized view of the past when we're squeezed. 
is that when we face a spiritual hardship or any kind of hardship, I think we have a tendency to do this, to say we think back into our lives, say, you know, if only it was back then, things were so good back then, I had all those things at my disposal and life was carefree. Is that really true? Say far more true is that this life is hard and being a Christian is very difficult, especially in these times that we're never promised an easy path, are we? You find that in the Bible to say it were never promised an easy path, but rather that there's adversity in the way and that we tend, when we face that adversity, to have a narrowed view, an idealistic view of the past, and if we're really not careful, that we can even say, I wish that I was like those non-Christians and carefree. It's a very dangerous place they find themselves in. Also, verse 3, that when we're pressed, we have a tendency to uh, cast, what shall we say, a kind of assumption of negativity on the part of others or negative intent. Now, look what they say about Moses. Moses, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. Now, that's not true, is it? It's far from the truth, but it's often what we feel. Say again, people ask me, what, the Bible, you think that's true? You think of the commentary and how relevant this is. Here I'm going, I face a bit of hardship. The first thing that happens when I face hardship is I have a narrowed view. I have an idealistic view of the past, a false view of the past, and now I pivot to start to blame others and I project negative intent, say, actually, the, the, you're, you're the one. That's why I'm in this woman you gave me, God, down here, that's my problem, or these parishioners say, that's my problem instead of the real problem, which is my crooked heart. And you'll see that this negativity and this grumbling and complaining, you think about this in a smaller scale. You just had a lot of family events as I did. You think back, you have a relative that's, that's a, a great complainer, uh, a great critic. You say, God, you know, this uncle, you really gave him the gift of criticism, you know, and I get to spend the holidays with him. Maybe you have somebody like that. What's it like? What's it like somebody going out, pointing out all the flaws, casting blame, this is the problem? You say it pollutes, it pollutes the family. You say, well, the church family is bigger than the biological family. What happens if grumbling and complaining get into the assembly as they have here, right? We're led to apply mass uprising, right? That they're all grumbling and complaining against Moses. You say, we're in real trouble. The negativity and grumbling and complaining, they never help. It's very different, by the way, so I have to be careful here because I think the church has not such a good history. Um, complaining and feedback are very different. Say, well, we want feedback. We want to think about things. We want to make changes where appropriate. Say, that's a wonderful thing for a family to do. Say, hey, this isn't working. How can we do it better? Or maybe we shouldn't do this and do more of this. That's a very good thing. That's not what's happening here. Grumbling and complaining is never constructive. It's just going around, blaming others, saying all that the problems and all the struggles that we have, and it doesn't really move the ball down the field. Now, to the, to the question here now for us. Hard question. Would anyone accuse me of being a grumbler? The people that know me best. If they were kind of pulled off to the side and they knew that the answer was going to be private. You know, Austin, what's he like? Is that guy critical? grumbling against our situation and maybe there is good reason to be grumbling these days and we all know that we feel it say is that uh, is that what i'm like and if i am like that what's it doing to my family if i'm like that in the church what's it doing to my church family and i'm very thankful i must say here that uh, we are not a grumbling people at providence church uh, i'm thankful for that i find uh, our church to be a very encouraging place uh, actually a place where we do give feedback and we make changes so this is in no way an indictment but more to say lord preserve us from this grumbling in this critical spirit because adversity which we will face 
when we are squeezed, when we think God's forgotten about us, when our needs are not being met, say our tendency, what's it going to be? We're going to have a narrower view of things. We're going to have an idealistic view of times beforehand. We're going to start to blame others, and we're going to be grumblers and complainers and critics, and that's not going to be healthy. As it wasn't healthy for Israel, it's unhealthy for any church. So adversity, this adversity, what are we really like? What I'm really like is somebody who's easily pleased, but very rarely satisfied. I'm somebody, the moment I get something that I like, I'm doing well, but I quickly slide off to being a grumbler. It's quite an indictment on the human nature. Lord, have mercy on us. Secondly, my point is going to focus on verse 8. Verse 8, too, I think, again, different when you step into being a, in the covenant family of God. The people are grumbling against Moses, and he says, what are we? You see, what, who are we? Moses and Aaron. We, we didn't do any of this, so people are confused. I think Moses and Aaron are the ones who are actually pulling the strings here. Say, well, no, we know it's been God straight through. But then this line, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You think about that, uh, having a critical spirit, any sin for that matter. I have plenty of appreciation for the fact that it might be hurting another person. A lot of us think of that, that horizontal dimension, say, well, when I do something wrong, it's hurting the person. It's all horizontal. Verse 8 says there's a far more serious problem in human sin and even this grumbling spirit that it offends God. It's an assault on God. Say, why is it an assault on God? Because when I complain about my situation, if you're a Christian now, I'm talking, if you're a Christian and you're complaining about your situation and your needs not being met, what are you really saying? God, you don't know what you're doing. You've not provided for me. Uh, you're out to lunch here. You don't understand how tough my life is right now. Can you see how that's an assault on the character of God? And Moses calls him to task. Say, you Israelites, you, you, you grumblers and you complainers, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the heat of it, Moses said. It's really annoying. But you've got a far more serious problem. That you're telling God he doesn't know what he's doing. And this lack of contentment, this lack of gratitude is an offense to God. You think you could... Take this a bit. You know, we all like to think of the you know, hierarchy of sins. I think we all do that. Just say, well, that was just a little bit, you know, took a little money, not a lot of money, or I told a little lie, not a big lie. Say, no doubt that human sin has different levels of consequence. No doubt about that. But ultimately, any act of sin is an offense to God. Uh, this is a, a biblical worldview. So think about this in Psalm 51, very important psalm. David has committed adultery. And the line in your notes, right, he tells God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You say, you think about that, the way we use our bodies, the stuff I look at, you know, it hurt my spouse, no doubt, hurt the other person in those instances. But I've also told God, he's not looking out for me in the way I think he should be looking out for me. Say, how about Joseph, same kind of scenario, Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife, you remember Joseph, a very noble figure. What does Joseph say? I can't have union with Potiphar's wife because it would grieve the heart of God. And I wish that we'd recapture this a bit as a church, that I'd recapture that my critical spirit and my grumbling, my lack of contentment and my lack of gratitude against God is really an assault on him. Not only does it pollute all of you, my church family, my biological family, but it actually offends God very much. I'll ask this question. What should the Israelites have done? It's a very obvious answer. 
it's so obvious it even happens in one of the instances. Look at 15 and verse 25, right? They have no water or the water's bitter. Moses cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him the way forward, in this case, the log. He, he prayed. He prayed for his need. They've seen the judgments on Egypt. They've seen the sea divided. They've acknowledged God as the creator of the universe. They've acknowledged God as the one who does great wonders, who at a spoken word, so very easy. How many times in Exodus have we seen one little word from God? All the great human authorities, Pharaoh, the king of the Mediterranean world, God with one word puts him down. And the people still don't get it. You pray and ask God for help. And you say, wow, before we're too harsh on these Israelites, we again take inventory that I complain about my lot I complain about my hardship. And sometimes the last thing on my mind is to say, God, I need your help. Help me to feel satisfaction in you. Help me to feel that pleasure that I know is true. In Psalm 16, joy and satisfaction and pleasure is in you. Help me now, God. And how quick is God to, to deliver for his people? I say Again, you're, you're reading this now from a, a slightly different angle. Look at, look, at what, look at God in this passage. How do you handle grumblers and critics i know the way i feel with grumblers and critics you say i wish that i had the bolt of lightning uh that, that you say I, I i'm eliminating the problem so to speak one where i i can't deal with it the last thing i want to do act the very last thing you want to do is is uh give in to a grumbler it goes against every fiber in our nature how high-minded how gracious must a person be to deal graciously with these grumblers? But that's exactly what the God of the Bible does. He deals graciously with his people because they're his people and he made a promise. Now, if that doesn't pierce your heart, I can only say that we're a bit maladjusted that I know that in my line of work, so to speak, that I've met, and met many a convert, uh, been a Christian, my, many, many a hardened person, a hardened person that has come to faith in Christ. And I think when this truth can sink into the mind and more importantly into the heart that this is how God changes people. Wait a second here. I've spent decades doing my own thing thinking that I'm responsible for meeting my needs, for clenching my fist at God, quite frankly, for doing all kinds of things outside of God's parameters, and yet God has dealt graciously with me, and he's giving me a chance. Maybe you're here today. You say, I'm surprised that, you know, use the line, I'm surprised this church didn't burn down with me walking in today. I've been, you know, had so many bad thoughts about God and done so many bad. Can you see how God deals graciously with sinners? that he put forth Jesus for that very reason. Say, we're all sinful and grumbling and forget God, but God deals graciously and he provides for the people. Do you see what God is like? That's what God is like. So, a couple moves so far. Adversity, as Christians, will force us to ask the question what we're really like, and what we're really like is that we're, we're sinful grumblers. But God, graciously, even though we've offended him in this grumbling, has met us in kindness in providing for us and in Jesus. And so the third point here is that can we appreciate the fact that God is the one who meets 
our daily needs. Now, why do I bring this? This is such an important point for our congregation, and I've said this a number of times. I hope it's a, a way that, that is um, a reality as you see it, but also really what it is is a warning, and it's this. Paul, when preaching or writing to Corinth, said this. The church in Corinth, the people that made it up, were not that impressive by worldly standards. I think the exact opposite about Providence Church. I, I, tell, I, I think about every person I meet would be considered impressive by worldly standards. Yeah, well, that's nice. We're doing pretty well, aren't we? You say, there's a huge warning there for us. Because what we're inclined to say is, God, you know what? I'm doing pretty fine without you. Daily needs? Well, I've got more than enough for as long as I'm going to live and then some. And, you know, by the way, I've got all the credentials that I need and I'm doing just fine. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, I'll say it, but I don't really mean it. Can you see the hazard in which we find ourselves? Not to be dependent on God when he's entrusted us with so much to be stewards of all he's trusted us, both our minds and our positions and, quite frankly, our material. How do we steward that, giving glory to the king? Because here's the arrangement. You say, why is this done this way? You notice the arrangement. What God, what's God, how's he going to provide for them? He's going to cause manna to come down. By the way, manna... It, the word means, what is it? That's what they call the bread. What is it? So it's definitely a miracle. You know, some say, well, you know, it's this fungus that grows. No, no, it's a miracle. What is it? It's God's provision. And what's he going to do? Have a look there. So verses 4, 5, and then 22 to 30, which we'll, the Sabbath we'll get to in a few weeks. But he's going to provide just enough for each day. Why does God do this? Why is he putting them through this? You'll notice 5 and verse 25, and then again in 16 and verse 15 and, and 25, and then six, uh, 16 and verse 4. He tells us exactly, I'm doing it this way that I may, can you see it? Test them. I'm providing for them daily to test them. The adversity that they're feeling is not because God is out to lunch, but it's deliberate to test the faithful obedience of the people. See, they try to collect more and the extra would rot. Why? Because what are they doing in that case? They're saying, well, actually, I don't really trust God. I need to take more and a bit extra for myself. And God says, no, no. Every day I provide. And for 40 years, every day, God provided. Except on the sixth day, you'll notice, right? He gives double because the seventh day, they're to honor as a day of rest and not collect. Again, they'd have to trust him. Trust him for two whole days. You see, friends, God arranges this so that we would trust him daily with our needs. I had a mentor who helpfully told me, you know what, young man, surrender is always a day old. Surrender is always a day old. You wake up, say, God, this is your day, and I know you're going to meet my needs. And you're the one who's going to satisfy me. And everything that I have in my life is not because I'm a clever guy, but because you're kind to me. You've been gracious to me, even when I've grumbled and even when I've defied you. That's the God of the Bible. So I ask you today, when we in our Lord's Prayer say, give us this day our daily bread, I pray we'd be a congregation that means it. We're dependent on God. He supplies our needs. We walk in him. Now, one final point as I bring this home to say, is this just about the physical? We all know we have real physical needs, food, water here, real physical needs. When God delivers on the physical needs, it all points 
towards actually a greater need, a spiritual need. God does the manna, the physical need, to test them to spiritual obedience. And while I wish we had more time to look at it, I'll read a few, but if you, this week, read John chapter 6. It's a long chapter, but well worth it. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That the real need, the real need, the reason why God's testing them, the real need is to point to a much greater hunger that we have that is a spiritual hunger, a longing to be right with our maker. And I think we know this is true. Maybe you're here today and you... you you probably say people would look at my house and my upbringing and my job, my family, and they probably would say, you know, I, that, that guy must be a pretty satisfied guy. He must have a lot of pleasure and a lot of joy in his life. Say, but I think there might be some here today to say, if only the world knew how empty I was. See, all those things don't satisfy the longing of our heart. You say, look globally, say, Praise God, we've been able to lift a lot, many, many millions out of poverty in my lifetime. Praise God, we've met a lot of physical needs. Very important thing for Christians to do. But we still have very, very big problems because the problem is the human heart. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven and whoever comes to me and recognizes who I am, that they're not going to be spiritually hungry, that they're going to be fulfilled. So Christian today, member of Providence Church, I think the lesson for us today is to recognize, A, that God is the one who meets our spiritual needs, and more importantly, that in Jesus, that's where our satisfaction comes from, that we're full in him. And non-Christian today, whatever you're making of this, think, well, yeah, there's a lot of bad things in the world, and I've definitely done some grumbling. Maybe just a little bit. Would you entertain for a moment that there could be a better way? The way of surrendering to the Lord Jesus, recognizing that he lived a sinless life, took the shot on the cross, right, for the penalty that I deserve, that God's dealt graciously with me and Jesus, and that I can surrender to Jesus today. I can surrender to him and be right with God and be spiritually replete. You gotta love the, the little line there in 16 and verse 18. When God feeds the people, they have no lack. They have no lack. Say, what a great thing that would be to say we're a people with no lack not because we do well in the world, but because we're spiritually full in Jesus. So as I pray this in, what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to celebrate communion fittingly, which is a, a celebration of this truth, that we are spiritually renewed to say, yes, it is Jesus who we need. And so as we prepare our hearts, I will pray and invite Jim to back up. Lord, we do confess reading something like this, that we can be rather good grumblers, and that as we go forth uh, in the times in which we find ourselves and there's adversity, help us to see how inclined we are to take a narrow view of things, to start casting blame on others, to forget you, to idealize our past, to say all these things that really help us to ask that, what am I really like? What's human nature really like? And then to see, Lord, that that 
critical spirit in me, that, that neglect of you, that lack of contentment, uh, really communicates to you that I don't think you know what you're doing, which is a big problem. So Lord, for those of us in Christ, help us to see that we have all of our needs met and then some, that there is no lack, that you feed us and renew us spiritually. And Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts now as we uh, take a visible reminder of this truth that uh, Jesus' broken body uh, builds us up in the faith. So Lord, keep this first and foremost on our minds this week that you satisfy us even in barren times that you're the one who feeds us. Help us to be content and joyful. And Lord, when there's opportunity to tell our non-believing friends who may be feeling empty where real satisfaction is, I pray we'd be quick to remember this truth in your word for Christ's sake. Amen.